Determined to save a 200-year-old tree in their neighborhood, the girls start gathering signatures for a petition. But when the landowner where the tree is located wants it torn down, serial killer Rose strikes again. Will Frida Claxton be buried in a potter's field? Will Rose ever get caught for her murder spree? Will Blanche really show off her orator skills in public? All of that and a special guest appearance from Melissa, the mod mortician, to talk all things death planning on today's episode, It's a Miserable Life. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go, I hope you know you'll always be my sister. Playing on the title of the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life, this episode starts out with an exciting new opening as we watch a car pull into the driveway at breakneck speeds. It makes you wonder if you'll be mid-emergency by the time you join the girls. Luckily, whomever it is just drives like me, and they're just trying to get home. Coming in the door, Dorothy, now safely parked, finds Sophia going over some paperwork. As usual, the writers have dropped us off mid-story so we can get to the funny stuff without a lot of plot building. Checking in with her mom, we learn Sophia has gotten 35 signatures. Make that more like 32 signatures, since three of them are from dead people. That's Sophia, always cheating. Once again rocking her yellow sweatshirt with light pants is Blanche, who has just arrived home as well. Gleefully, she hands over her signatures to Dorothy, who is wearing light pants, a white blouse, a loose necktie scarf thing, and what looks to be a red sweater under a blue explosion of a sweater. It's not a great look. And she's shocked to see that even though Blanche has been gone for hours, she's only collected a single signature. Blanche explains, it's not like she's done getting signatures for the day. She had to work extra hard for that one, or perhaps just got distracted by the looks and availability of the signer, and she now needs to hop in the shower and get changed. Maybe she'll get another one or even two signatures by the time the day is over. The light yellow, blue, and pink dress with a teal cardigan wearing Sophia can only look to Dorothy, who looks at her, both with a, can you believe this woman, face? Finally, Rose arrives wearing a light coral pant with an even lighter pink corally shirt and a white with coral ribbons cardigan. Unlike the excited Blanche who only got one signature, Rose isn't celebrating because of a single signature. And that's when we learn why they're gathering names in the first place. There is a tree that needs saving and it's on a Miss Frida Claxton's property and she is the holdout for signing, which is a real bummer. Because even if the whole town fought to save a tree, if it's on a person's property and they don't care, signatures aren't really going to do much to stop its demolition. It turns out the ladies are working to save the tree because it's a 200-year-old oak tree. Being in southern Florida, it could be one of six varieties. Chinquapin oak, bluejack oak, live oak, swamp laurel oak, turkey oak, or willow oak. When Rose rhetorically asks why Frida wouldn't want to protect the tree, Sophia has the unwelcome answer. She's a miserable, vile, scum-sucking crank. 
And if the cranky, irritable, sarcastic, sometimes cruel Sophia feels that way, you know this Claxton broad is bad news. This begins a five-second-long existential conversation between Rose and Sophia. For Sophia, Frida Claxton is a completely rotten person. Rose doesn't believe there can be a completely rotten person, that no matter how small the amount, there is good in everyone. But Rose's namesake disposition doesn't sway the rest of the girls. Blanche agrees with Sophia that everyone hates her. Dorothy backs her up with proof. Half the kids last year were wearing Frida Claxton costumes while they were trick-or-treating. But Rose doesn't budge. It must be, she surmises, that Frida, like any other bully, just needs to be shown love. In fact, it reminds Rose of a story from St. Olaf. Upon hearing the Nordic name in Rose's story, the girls know what's coming and all start making quick moves and quick excuses. Blanche is hungry, so she runs for the kitchen. Without saying a word, Dorothy and Sophia follow her like baby ducks. They had to make the drastic move because for Blanche, another St. Olaf story would cause her to explode. While the ladies were able to make it to the kitchen, they simply trapped themselves there with no exit as Rose follows them from the living room. Not skipping a beat, she picks up where she left off with her story of Ernest T. Minky, St. Olaf's librarian and dentist. Because he was so awful, no one went to the library or got their teeth looked at, leaving the people of St. Olaf illiterate and with really bad teeth. Or with the term Rose uses, Indian corn. Indian corn, also known as flax corn, is a decorative corn. Fun facts, America is the world's biggest grower of corn. Corn does not grow in the wild, and a not-so-fun fact, up to 75% of all grocery items contain corn. According to History.com, flint corn is named that because of its hard shells. It can grow to have white, blue, and red kernels. They work for drying out to be decorations because of all of the starch surrounding each kernel. You can actually eat flint corn, especially for foods like hominy or polenta. And yes, the oh boy comes in the name, hence why I'm calling it flint. It was named Indian corn as the indigenous people taught the Europeans how to grow, harvest, and cook with it. Can I tell you, Alicia, as a freak child, dark secret that no one knows? Uh-huh. Go ahead. <laughs> it can stay in the show. I don't care. Ooh, dark secret. An aunt of mine that is estranged now, but I grew up going over there. She, I think, if I remember correctly, I was so little, I think she had year-round decorative corn. And I was such a little weirdo. I would, like, when I was over there, I'd pick little pieces. I would just sit and chew on a piece of Indian corn kernel. This is like the decorated, the decorative. Yeah, like it had been dried out. Like the decorative multicolored uh-huh. cob. Yeah, where it's usually like mostly brown and then it's got kind of those really natural colors of red and blue and, and all that. And you would just snag a kernel? We'd be sitting there and I would just reach over and play with it. Well, I liked fidgeting with it. Obviously. And then, <laughs> and then if I could get one to pop out like a little loose tooth, I'd be like, ooh. And then I would just sit and chomp on it like a little freako. So yes, it is an edible corn. Don't just sit and snack on it. Well, you can snack on your own. You just shouldn't take your aunt's <laughs> flint corn. That's been sitting out for who knows how long. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, this is not fresh, freshly it was flinted nev- corn. <laughs> she walks in, you have one of her precious <laughs> moments dolls in, her, in your mouth. <laughs> I suddenly just have pica. Sorry. Started with the corn. Chewing up ceramic clowns, <laughs> velvet paintings of horses. <laughs> Who do you think my aunt was? 
<laughs> You've painted a horror house. Well, my aunt. <laughs> Hoping her faux interest and appreciation would bring the story to an end, Dorothy extends a hand to Rose's arm, thanking her for the enlightening tale. It didn't work, though. Rose is only halfway through her tale of Minky. Sophia can't take it. The stories are so painful, she'd rather be experiencing passing a kidney stone. In a recent study, those that had experienced kidney stones not only compared it to the same pain level as childbirth, they rated it an average of 7.9 out of 10. So yeah, that's a pretty painful story. What, what's a 10? Childbirth and kidney stones are not even Well, they're eight? close, so childbirth is probably like a 9 or a 10. 10 would be like... You're burned alive. Yeah, really serious damage. Maybe a limb going missing. Steamrolled to death. Well, you can't say how it felt when you're dead. Well, that's certainly one way to speak to me. <laughs> Checking out the newest Nancy Drew book, Rose was able to change Mr. Minky and St. Olaf for the better. Coming out in 1930, Nancy Drew has appeared in over 150 books. While the young female detective has been around almost 100 years, she has been written by ghostwriters using the pseudonym Carolyn Keene. And as Rose waited to get that book, Minky's tie started to get gobbled up in the stamping machine, so Rose busted out her Girl Scout knife and cut it off, saving his life. Naturally, he showed his gratitude by letting her keep the library book for a full week instead of the usual hour because mean Mr. Minky was a control freak and didn't like his books leaving where he felt they belonged in the library. As powerful as that statement was, it wasn't what the former Prime Minister of England, Winston Churchill, said at the Yalta Conference. The Yalta Conference, or the Crimea Conference, took place in 1945, post-World War II. It was a meeting of the President of the United States, Roosevelt, and the Prime Minister of England, Churchill, and the Premier of the USSR, Joseph Stalin to make a plan for Germany after they attempted, you know, their whole taking over the world thing. It was a pivotal meeting for the three great powers of the world. And no, he didn't mention anything about libraries. Inspired by her own story, Rose has decided she will be the one to convince Frida Claxton to sign the petition. She knows she'll respond to her kindness and understanding with the same feelings, and they will save that tree. To prove her point, Rose walks right over to the phone and calls her. We can only assume she asked Rose if she was maybe sitting on a tack, as we only hear one side of the phone call where Rose responds with, I've never sat on one before, but wouldn't that be painful? It's a week later, and it's time for the county commissioner meeting. To get it through, the purple and blue shiny dress-wearing Sophia suggests they staple a $20 bill to the petition. But Dorothy's right. That's called bribery. And while that may have worked back in Sicily, it won't work in Miami these days. Correcting her, Sophia points out it was New York where the bribery worked. In Sicily, you just had to put a horse's head in someone's bed to get things done. This is, of course, a reference to the famous scene in The Godfather when a filmmaker who doesn't want to put a mob guy's kid in a movie wakes up to a strange feeling at the end of his bed. Whipping back the blood-soaked sheets, he's horrified to find the head of his pet horse, which has been placed in his bed. First off, what are you taking to sleep so well, sir? 
Secondly, it's not only horrifying to find a horse's head, but the meaning is scary too. In The Godfather, it was basically, do this thing we told you to do, or you're a dead man. In real life, there were no documented cases of this. According to HowStuffWorks.com, the author of The Godfather, Mario Puzo, made up the horse's head and everything else. He never worked with or talked to anyone in the mob before writing the book or before Francis Ford Coppola made the film. As for the Sicilian method, Sophia can prove it through one of her own colorful stories. Just ask Fredo Lombardi, their garbage commissioner. After he went on strike, he woke to find National Velvet on his pillow, thus ending the strike. While National Velvet sounds like a racehorse name, it's actually the name of a movie from 1944 starring Sophia's future hustler boyfriend, Mickey Rooney, and the always classic Elizabeth Taylor. Fun fact from Medium.com, this was Elizabeth Taylor's first role at just 12 years old, and while filming, she actually fell off of a horse and broke her back. Being so young, it healed quickly, but it was a pain that she ended up carrying through her life. MGM's National Velvet, the exciting story of a girl, a horse, and a dream in color. All of Sophia's silly planning brings out Blanche's patriotic side. With her voice deepening and her southern accent drawing out like molasses, she proclaims that they are in the greatest country with the greatest democratic system, and they will save that tree. And she knows it because she slept with two of the men on the commission. While Dorothy, in her floor-length dress that, well, there's no real other way to describe it than to say it looks like a bedsheet made out of denim, but it's reversible, and on the other side is a light floral pattern. She's wrapped the sheet around her, put her arms out, and turned just a little bit of it over at the collar so some of those flowers can give it a pop. She's tied the whole thing together with those 80s cow lady boots. And Blanche, in her pink shirt with multicolored pattern and matching pink cover and pants, sit on the bench with Sophia, Rose, in her taupe-colored dress, gold belt, and white cardigan, comes running up to them. She knows they are going to save that tree because she has been persistent, going to Frida's house every day for the whole week, bringing her different flavored danishes, including prune. Rose begged and pleaded until the day of the commissioner meeting when she finally agreed to save the tree. Proving Rose right. Sometimes you just need to show someone some love and compassion, and they'll see things your way. Spotting the gray from head to toe Frida, Sophia points out that the witch is on her way. Hoping her cheerful greeting will help things, Blanche springs up to say her hellos. At first, Frida doesn't recognize her neighbor, asking who she was. Blanche answers, and after giving her an optical once-over, the cranky old witch, I mean the woman playing Frida Claxton, is Nan Martin. Not only did she have this oh-so-iconic role, she'll actually be back in a few years when Dorothy's identity is questioned. Additionally, she had 138 credits in her years on screen. Before passing away at 82 years old in 2010, Nan had roles on Las Vegas, NYPD Blue, Nip Tuck, Six Feet Under, Shallow Howl, Castaway, Curb Your Enthusiasm, The Drew Carey Show, Suddenly Susan, The Practice, Chicago Hope, ER, Baywatch, Harry and the Hendersons, which had a TV show that I did not know existed, Major Dad, Columbo, My Sister Sam, Star Trek, The Mod Squad, Mission Impossible, Bewitched, The Twilight Zone, and don't you know it, La La. Fun fact, for how old they make Frida in this episode, at the time, Nan was only 60. So they did a pretty good job making her look like she was on death's doorstep. While there are times I sort of disagree with the girl's decisions or reaction, this one I totally disagree with. 
As Frida goes on about using her binoculars to watch Blanche have sexual relations, and then she says she's documenting the actions and she's looking into whether or not they can be reported as a legal activity, well, Blanche not only has every right to punch her in the face, morally speaking, but she should walk right over to the police station and file a report for harassment. Instead, Rose and Dorothy talk her down like, don't let her get under your skin. Um, but I will because she's breaking the law and invading my privacy. Oh, God. Dorothy has stood up. It's not a dress. Which makes sense. She only wears dresses on fancy nights. Instead, this is a huge denim skirt with a differently colored denim top. It's so bad. Anyway, she's stepping in to calm the situation between Frida and Blanche. Politely introducing herself to her, Frida points out she's also stalking Dorothy saying she's the one whose bedroom is the antithesis of Blanche's. This causes an equally angered reaction from Dorothy. Finally, Rose puts herself between the heated Dorothy and Frida. She again uses her you-catch-more-flies-with-honey approach of being overly kind. She graciously thanks Frida for going out of her way to make it to the meeting so that they can save the tree. Ah, but Frida corrects her. No, ma'am, I'm here to make sure they tear it down. You could almost forgive her for wanting to tear it down if maybe the roots were causing damage to her foundation or the leaves were damaging her roof. Maybe they could move it somewhere safer. But no, she wants it gone because she hates trees and she hates people. But Blanche remembers. Frida told Rose when she was delivering the Danish that she would come down to help. Now she's changed her mind? What happened there? Simple, she says. She wanted the prune Danish. She said what she needed to get her hands on it. Poor thing, maybe she's backed up and needs those prunes for some help. The girls are shocked. They can't understand why she would be so mean. It's simple. She wanted to get back at the type of person she hates the most, the kind that take pity on people living alone, which is totally fair. My Grammere lived alone after her early 40s until she died, and as far as I ever knew, she was as happy as a clam. She got to live her life on her terms, and it was perfect for her. Personally, I love taking myself out on dates, or I used to, you know, in the before times. I have many friends that actually won't do it because they're too embarrassed. They worry about those pity people, the ones that see someone who is doing nothing more than self-care and whatever the hell they want, and it's an immediate, oh no, that poor, lonely, unloved person. What I'm saying is, point goes to Frida here. Although, to be fair, she is a little more hate-filled than the average person, so maybe there are some underlying issues she needs to talk to someone about. As she barks away, the girls are left in the lobby dumbfounded. Chasing after Frida, Sophia is hoping to douse her with some holy water because she's just a pea soup puke with a spinning head away from turning into Reagan from the film The Exorcist. Holy water is water that has been blessed by a clergy member and is used mostly to bless people. But as we've seen in the movies, it can be used to splash on someone to see if they are possessed by a demon. Specifically referencing the 1973 classic horror film The Exorcist, Sophia mentions when Reagan's, the possessed girl's, head spins all the way around. There's also a moment where she vomits green liquid all over a priest. The behind-the-scenes folks shared that to get that effect, they used pea soup and oatmeal. By this sign of the holy cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, Damien! The ladies head in for the meeting, taking their seats in the front row. Not to their case yet, we hear the verdict for the petition for an outdoor menudo concert, which was denied. 
I'm not quite sure if the joke here is to have Menudo or to block them. It's just kind of a weird moment. Forming in 1977, Menudo was one of the largest and longest-running Latin boy bands in history. They were able to make records and tour throughout the 2000s, breaking up officially in 2015, because they would simply replace members as they aged out. The most famous former member being Ricky Martin. Finally, it's time to talk about the subject at hand and to learn why the tree is in danger of being torn down in the first place. It's a proposal to widen Richmond Street, where the girls live. Which, sorry to poo-poo on the entire plotline here, but it seems like they're in a normal neighborhood with a normal street. How much traffic are they experiencing? How slender are those roads? The commission asks a representative against the proposal to come forward. Blanche starts to make her way to the front, but Dorothy grabs her arm. Why do you get to do it? Blanche gives us an oh boy here, but not in our usual that's pretty racist way. This time it's more of a pulling your collar way to let the steam out. Oh boy. She should speak because they'll have a better chance of winning. They'll have a better chance of winning because she is a great orator or public speaker. But because of the aura, or oral innuendo, it's especially naughty that Blanche follows up her self-compliment with, and two of the commissioners can verify that. Wowzers. Good for her. Good for them. Good for us all. Poor horny Blanche, though. When Dorothy clears up what appears to be her oral confusion, saying order means a speaker, Blanche is stunned, just stunned, and has a seat, saying someone else can go up there then. So, um, did she think order meant oral sex giver? And was she planning on doing that right then and there in front of everyone? I mean, no judgment, but wowza. Since the girls won't decide who will do the representing, Frida takes it upon herself to speak up for the side that agrees with the widening project. It's on my property. Cut it down. Dorothy takes a literal stand. All 60 residents of the Richmond block surrounding the tree have signed the petition. She's the only one who wants it gone. In fact, she'd prefer to have the area turned into concrete. It's cleaner. Rose joins in the fight. Please, she begs. That's when Frida openly admits to her criminal activity, claiming to have photos of Blanche in her bedroom, doing things only a slinky could do. Slinkies are those spring toys which were originally made in the 1940s with that very pinchy metal before becoming plastic. You can turn it any which way and have it basically bend over backwards for you. FYI, clacks, what you're doing is, at the very least, video voyeurism and is a third-degree felony in Florida. That's not counting the stalking, and it could all land you five years in prison with five years probation and a $5,000 fine. So shut up and stop doing that, you freaking creep. Not concerned with the legality or the morality regarding what was happening to Blanche, one of the commissioners that has enjoyed her orator skills is concerned with his own well-being, asking if anyone else was visible while she was peeping. Playing the commissioner is Johnny Hamer. He got his start in 1956's Stanley and worked all the way through the year of his passing, 1989, Poignantly, his final role being on the hit series, Life Goes On. 
He also made appearances on shows like Dick Van Dyke, Gunsmoke, Star Trek, Hogan's Heroes, Annie Hall, The Incredible Hulk, Mork and Mindy, Punky Brewster, MASH, Fame, The Jeffersons. He did voices on Scooby-Doo, The Transformers, Alvin and the Chipmunks, and those are just some of his many roles. He also made an appearance in this very over-the-top McDonald's commercial from the 1970s. Tell me what does it mean? At McDonald's it's clean. Frida has had it. Stop wasting our time and stop wasting our money over a stupid tree. Get to building. But Rose can't take it. She continues to beg. Please consider your actions. The tree is not only 200 years old, it's a beautiful living thing, and you can't hate a living thing. Oh, but she can, and she hates Rose. Well, that does it for Rose. She's made danishes. She's ignored the mean comments. She's done everything to try to please this woman, just hoping for a little bit of respect in return and maybe some understanding about keeping the tree. Making her way across the room, Rose gets in Frida's face. I've had it. You suck. You're awful to everyone, and I'm done kissing your ass. And if you don't like that, too bad. You're going to sit down and shut up, and you're going to listen. And if you don't like doing that, then you can just drop dead. Gripping her heart, Frida turned stiff before falling right out of her chair, croaking while Rose walked away. Let's take a moment here. No, not for Frida. For Rose's evil powers? Charlie, death by sex with Rose. That married jerk, death by sex with Rose. Frida Claxon, get your head out of the gutter, death by interaction with Rose. I'm just saying there are two possibilities here. Either Rose has secret powers and can kill with her mind, or she's an actual serial killer. I'm not even entertaining the possibility that these are just coincidences. Let's not forget she might have been haunted as a child. I'm just saying, there's a backstory here that needs to be explored via fan fiction. Back at the house, we find a wilted Rose sitting at the table, solemnly dragging her fork across the icing of a piece of cheesecake. As Dorothy enters, Rose sighs her internal thoughts to her. Why do people die, she asks. Not interested in a deep conversation, as it is clearly bedtime, given Rose is in her light pink silk robe and Dorothy is in her blue with white lace collared to the gods nightgown. Dorothy can't know the answer to that, as she doesn't even know why, like the title of the 1956 song by Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, Why Fools Fall in Love. Dorothy's being far too generous now that I'm on to Rose's dark side, pointing out that a heart attack at 83 years old isn't that shocking. It was just bad timing. The stress and blame has kept Rose up for two nights straight. When a, we can only assume, home from a date and looking very fashionable in a matching silk suit with blue fabric and little iridescent cube-patterned Blanche, who can't believe Rose still can't sleep, comes home. For crying out loud, it's been two whole days since you killed Frida. You should be over it. Oh, so close to being helpful, Blanche. So close. Reacting to Blanche's choice of phrasing is Rose on the verge of tears and Dorothy on the verge of slapping Blanche. But she corrects herself. We all know Rose didn't do anything. Just go to her funeral and cry it out. That won't help, though, Rose explains. With no loved ones, friends, or neighbors who cared, Frida Claxton has no funeral plans and she's going to be sent to a potter's field. 
The term potter's field has origins in the Bible, something about coins and that Judas guy, but I'm not going to be talking about that. What a potter's field is, is a cemetery for those that are either unknown or unclaimed. So Frida will be taken to Miami's Kendall Indian Hammocks Park potter's field. For Rose, this is all too sad. For Blanche, Frida was a meanie, so she's not going to be sad about it. But Rose sees too much value in a person's life by how they're treated in death. She thinks an unattended funeral is the ultimate sadness. Does she not know that the people aren't there to know if no one attends? When presenting the question to Dorothy about how she'd feel about dying and having no one go to her service, Dorothy is again our queen of reason by saying she'd be more upset about being dead. Blanche joins in the cheesecake prodding and funeral conversation by saying she knows what her funeral will be like and it will be well attended. She knows this for a fact because she has already attended her funeral when she was 16. At 16, Blanche was coming out of puberty as a developed and very horny young lady. She could hardly sleep. She had such intense urges. As she goes on and on into vague yet graphic detail of her yearnings, she writhes as though her lust has turned into steam, which will shoot her out of her chair like a rocket. Leaving it to Dorothy, our relatable queen, to bring Blanche down to reality, sharing, When I was 16, I had acne and played the accordion. Preach it, sister. When I was 16, I had acne, played the violin, and wore old man slacks from the thrift store exclusively. Coco? When I was 16, I was a sophomore at an all-boys Catholic high school. I'd never talked to a girl, and I didn't kiss one for years after that. Um, I also had to wear pleated khakis, which I hated, and a lot of Dockers polo shirts. I like to read Stephen King books by myself, and I also like to eat by myself, and I like to stay up till 3 a.m. by myself watching stuff on HBO and Cinemax, if you know what I mean. And then I bloomed 20 years later. <laughs> okay, listeners, now it's your turn. Whether you're a Blanche or a Dorothy, let it out. When I was 16, I... That was beautiful. Thank you for opening up with us. Back to the funeral. At the Miss Magnolia Blossom pageant, Blanche was horrified to have only earned second place and Miss Congeniality. Ironic, since receiving that award made Blanche vindictive, since it was given to the pageant contestant with the most pleasant personality. She didn't care. She wanted to have been rewarded for her bangin' bod, just like the famous letter-turner and world record holder for the most claps at nearly four million, co-host of the game show Wheel of Fortune, Vanna White. It's funny Dorothy makes a joke about Vanna White not getting praise for her body because less than a year after this episode aired, she actually appeared in Playboy. Get it, girl? Bird food. That's it. Bird seat. She didn't get the million, but she got a hundred. Fun fact, that Wheel of Fortune clip is of my dear friend and co-host on my other show, Murder in the Rain, Emily Eichelberger, from when she was on for their Portland week and won big time. To get back at the town that had wronged Blanche, much like Rose's St. Olaf with her Butter Queen debacle, Blanche faked her own death via a riverboat accident. She was dating a captain that was probably over 18, so oh boy, and he helped her to make the entire plan. 
Oh, boy. What is with the law breaking around here, guys? Anyway, they pulled it off, and everyone thought Blanche had died. When it came time for her memorial, she watched on in delight as her loved ones mourned her, as heartbreaking eulogies were shared, as flowers were brought in. Just before the church broke out into sobs, Blanche ran up to the front of the congregation with a, Yoo-hoo! It's me! I'm not dead! This earned her gross boyfriend a whipping from Big Daddy and Blanche getting shipped off to a girls' school. This is a demonstration of the speed of sound achieved by the tip of this whip. This is the one chance that I have in this life to do the Indiana Jones thing. While normally Blanche could do no wrong, this time she crossed the line for Big Daddy. According to her, he didn't often get that way, but when he did, he was a real peckerwood. Oh boy. Peckerwood did originate in the South, coming simply from a reversal of woodpecker. I think in this case, Blanche means he was just kind of a pain in the butt, but what it really came to mean was a racial slur directed at poor whites in the South. White people, being how they are, then adopted it for themselves to refer to white prisoners and white supremacists. There are now hate symbols and tattoos that refer to Peckerwoods. I know Big Daddy had a plantation, but let's just play pretend that he inherited it and wasn't a white supremacist. As Blanche gets up to get a drink, Sophia joins in the kitchen to see what everyone is up to. Dorothy literally is unable to answer as the conversation has gone completely off the rails now that Blanche has turned the focus to her. They mention having talked about Frida's funeral, so Sophia asks when it will be as she wants to pay her respects. Seeing as paying your respects is something you do to be polite, Dorothy is shocked to hear her mother wishes to do so for Frida. But hate her or not, you do that to show God that an awful person or a good person, either way, you respect the life that he's created. Any idiot knows that, even Rose. Dorothy tries to bring the conversation back to the topic at hand, the funeral. She tells Sophia there won't be one. Well, not on Sophia's watch. She and Rose both feel they should be responsible for her service, for just the reason Sophia said, to show respect for life. Sophia stops Dorothy. No, I'm not trying to be nice. It's good luck to bury your enemy. But Dorothy calls her out on her BS. You're just making that up because you feel sad Frida was all alone. Well, so what if she is, Dorothy? Let her deal with it in her own way. Seeing their reasoning, Blanche and Dorothy hop on board with paying for a funeral. Rose's heart is overjoyed. What a beautiful gesture for Sophia to offer for them to split the cost. Split it, Sophia reasons. You killed her. You should have to pay at least half. And I don't really know that she's wrong. A new obstacle brings us to a new location, the mortuary. It's funny the show chose mortuary as it is different from a funeral home because they focus on the body more. What service are you getting, burial or cremation? How will the body be tended to? Making for less emphasis on the service and family. With how much care seems to be coming from our next character, you'd think it was more like a funeral home. Coming in through the dramatically medieval doors of the mortuary is a teal-dressed Blanche whose silk outfit has slightly different colored paint strokes, making her look like a disco ball for a preschooler. A purple and pink plaid-dressed rose, a blue dress-wearing Sophia, and a burlap blah sweater over a Wall Street blue button-up shirt and deli-wrapping paper brown slacks Dorothy make their way through the hall. 
Blanche is in a rush as she hates funeral homes. Shockingly, at 45, she's only been to two funerals. When Dorothy calls her out for lying, Blanche doesn't correct her age. She corrects her funeral number to three. Is that what kids mean today by body count? How many funerals you've been to? Old man here. What does that mean? <laughs> body count? Yeah, is that how many people you slept with? Yeah. That's the new, instead of how many people have you been with, it's what's your body count? Or in Rose's case, murder. Popping his head out of the side doors is the funeral director who has caught the already antsy Blanche off guard, scaring her to bits. Asking for forgiveness, Rose shares that Blanche gets upset of funeral homes. He understands. Everywhere else talks about all that morbid death stuff. Not at Forever Peaceful. Seeing as all they deal with is that death stuff, a confused Sophia inquires, if they don't deal with the death, what do you have? Sushi? Taking the gals into what he's dubbed the slumber chamber, the director has turned casket salesman, showing off all of his finest new models. Then, the quote of all quotes. The joke of all jokes. Handing Dorothy his business card, she looks up to ask him a question. Now knowing his name, she says... Uh, well, Mr. Pfeiffer... That's a Pfeiffer. The P is not silent. I love a good joke that has nothing to do with a story. With a joke like that, you can almost hear the writer's laughter from when they first thought of it. It's so simple, so genius. Just a simple, little bit weird, common last name. Changing one part of it, and boom, you've got a classic. This joke really found new life in the Golden Girls world when the Pfizer vaccine came onto the market. Awkwardly taking a moment to process what he just said, the girls all look around in bewilderment. Attempting the question again, Dorothy says, Mr. Pfeiffer, once again, the crowd loses it. Thinking he's looking at three sisters and an elderly mother of which they're planning the final arrangements for, he comments on how heartwarming it is to see a family plan ahead. Here's another reason the Pfeiffer joke is so great. They squeeze this lemon dry, getting at least three solid jokes out of it. The first, which cast the first, which catches you by surprise with the name, then Dorothy's pronunciation, which just sounds ridiculous. Then when Sophia approaches him and asks if he would like a punch in his face. Good comedy writing gets me as heated as a 16-year-old Blanche. Playing Mr. Pfeiffer is actor Tahom Sharp. I'm sorry, that's Tom Sharp. The H is silent. He had 30 roles in movies and television and many, many more commercials through the years. It's closed. Your bag doesn't have a green seal. These are my little friends. Use the Gladlock. When it really counts, get Gladlock. Can you hear that? They're applauding you. Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. When he wasn't selling us Ziploc bags, he was working on shows like Home Improvement, where he had multiple episodes, Spy Hard, Family Matters, Dinosaurs, Garfield and Friends, Empty Nest, Matlock, Head of the Class, Facts of Life, and his first role on the film Body Heat. Rose pulls Sophia back and corrects Pfeiffer. We're here for the neighbor everyone hated and that Rose killed. You know, the usual. Oh my gosh, I forgot they made a fourth joke out of Pfeiffer. As Dorothy approaches him to start with the planning, she trips herself up, Mr. Pfeiffer, about the funeral. She gets herself together, and she and Blanche explain that they are there for something cheap. So, of course, he shows them a model that he explains like a couture piece of fashion or a luxury car. Going on and on with the elaborate details, the ladies only have one question. What does it cost? He ignores them at first, finally saying it would be $6,000, or nearly 15000 in today's money. According to the Federal Trade Commission, the average casket is about $2,000, but some can run up to $10,000.
You could always go the way of the late Zsa Zsa Gabor, who was gifted a gold casket worth $40,000. Actually, there are a lot of other ways you can go. And for that, let's see who's at the door. Hi, it's me, Melissa, the modern mortician, at mod underscore mortician, uh, your alternative death care educator. In this episode, the ladies end up being responsible for planning the funeral of their neighbor. When they're doing this, they start by talking with the funeral director, and they start out by saying, we're on a budget, we didn't really know this person, and right away he shows them the $6,000 casket. Funeral services are kind of seen as being a little bit more scammy, if you will, than other businesses. What are some of those things that for you personally you see happening that just don't need to be purchased or don't need to even be offered? So to kind of t touch on exactly what happened right there, um, I see it happen far more often in corporate funeral homes or any kind of corporation involved. Like a lot of funeral homes use the same casket companies because they're only like two or three big brands in the U.S. And so they have salespeople that train the funeral directors on what to do. Being in this 20 years, I've seen a lot. And so what I've come to see is that the sales side of the industry pushes the director to always show the most expensive first because far be it from us to deny somebody the best. Salespeople are funeral directors. Funeral directors are salespeople. Whether they want to be or not, they can be a good one or they can be a bad one. They can hold your hand or they can force purchases or try to. Um, but that guy in, in the show, immediately I was just like, this is exactly what they make funeral professionals do when they've had this certain sales training. Is that something that they then feel obligated to do because getting a commission off of that is really how they're going to make their money? So a lot of uh, funeral homes aren't, or funeral directors aren't paid commissions on anything. It's really more when you're dealing with a cemetery um, and any, and those people aren't even licensed funeral directors that are selling you cemetery prop property and things like that. The funeral director, in my experience, is more or less just the punching bag. <laughs> Unless they're the owner of the funeral home, in which case, yes, they want to encourage you to buy the more expensive product. But a lot of us out there working for the man are not getting commissions and we're really there, um, literally available 24-7. So I know that that's kind of part of it, that predatory, like, you're sad. Don't you want to show them how much you love them? I actually with a funeral director like that recently, you know, I kind of thought, you know, I've had a few experiences with guys early like this in my career, but I never really witnessed it. It was more hearsay. I was shadowing a funeral director here in Seattle, um, and he did that with families. He absolutely did that with families, and he would tell us to even be like, well, this is what your culture normally gets. And I was just like, so yeah, those, those guys exist. And he wasn't making a commission. So to avoid the situation that the ladies have by picking something two days before they have the service, what are things that we can do now to prepare for our death and have our families be prepared for our final wishes? Obviously, the best thing is to talk about it before it's happened. Um, nobody wants to talk about it or, you know, most sane people don't want to talk about it. Um, but it's going to happen to everybody, just like you have a birthday every year, you're going to have a death day. And if you're not ready for it, your family can be susceptible to sales practices, because a lot of the general public, just like they get 
lured one way or another politically, it, the same thing can kind of happen, you know, if you're not strong in your, in your, you know, convictions and what you're wanting, you can be swayed. That's why salespeople do so well at everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So having those conversations of this is what I want. These are my wishes. It doesn't even have to be written down or in a will, just making sure somebody knows yeah. what you want. Yeah. Or multiple people, the more the merrier. If you don't have, like, if you default on your next of kin, like your parents are immediately your next of kin and you want things to be one way, but their religion maybe dictates things should be another way. You should have somebody else designated as your appointed agent to make sure things go the way you want it to be. Um, and nobody likes casket shopping, right? But guess what? You can do it online now. There's Costco. Many funeral homes have caskets on their websites. If you're looking for a green burial or not a burial at all, all this information is on the internet. And speaking of green burial, you are a fairly prominent voice in alternative options. Can you talk about some of the more exciting and green and natural things that have not only been approved lately, but are kind of starting to become more commonplace? Yeah. So everybody thinks you've got two options uh, or maybe three, body donation, uh, burial, cremation. So water cremation is one of the more up and coming uh, offerings available, currently legal in 17 of the 50 states in the U.S. and somewhere in Canada, I believe, or they're getting it legalized in Canada. Um, water cremation is an eco-friendly alternative to flame. It doesn't put any um, fossil fuels into the atmosphere. It doesn't burn mercury. It's not dangerous for the operator to work the machine. Um, you don't have to worry about your place burning to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's a gentler alternative. And a lot of people are connected to the water. And this is a great opportunity for them to return to nature in a water method. So what happens is instead of being placed into a furnace, the body's placed into a tank with a mixture of 95% water and a 5% lye solution, which is really just like sodium hydroxide and sodium potassium. But it's like sitting in the bathtub a long time where your fingers start to wrinkle up. Well, it's just like that movie um, where everybody kind of just turns to dust, but you're like liquid and your bones are left. And all the liquid portion of you that's left, that 85% of water and fats and amino acids and peptides and salts, all of that becomes really good liquid, really good liquid that is either like a power punch of awesomeness to the septic or the municipal water system, or many facilities uh, have like sod farmers or orchard places like tree farmers come pick this liquid up and it's like liquid gold for plant life. The bones that are left are just like they turn into talcum powder after they're dried. And so there's no, um, it's, they're not pH negative. So, you know, you, you hear all those things about be a tree. That's not really good. But this stuff would actually be okay to mix with soil and things and wouldn't do anything detrimental. So unlike Frida Claxton's ashes going at the bottom of the tree and maybe doing damage, this would actually yeah. be beneficial for that tree. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. I've been really fascinated. Uh, my end of life plan, I'm interested in aqua cremation, which I think was just approved here in Oregon not that long ago. That and and the other one being green burial or a natural burial. Can you touch on that? I actually learned of that from you. So can you touch on what that looks like for people? 
So the green burial is where somebody is just like wrapped in a blanket or a shroud and they're buried literally about three and a half feet down. Not every cemetery is designed for this because a lot of the big cemeteries require like concrete boxes for the casket to go in. That way that the, the ground is protected from crushing the casket when they drive big trucks over it and stuff like that. Depending on the cemetery you find, there are several in Oregon, actually. Um, one in South Washington in Clicky Clatty, Clicky Tack County. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you could just be like literally returned to nature or in a cardboard box with your friends and family painting all over it or a pine box um, or laid nude in a hole. You know, these are these are cemeteries that exist out there and you just have to do a little legwork to find them. But then in addition to that, we've gone further with natural organic reduction. That's human composting. Oh, I think I just read about that. That was just approved in Washington, right? Yes. And it looks like it's going to go through in Oregon and Colorado as well. Natural organic reduction is currently offered by three providers in the Washington state area. Um, You've got two that are housed in a warehouse and then one that is out at a natural burial park in Clicky-Clatty County. (laughs) Easy for you to say. Right. It's okay, everyone. She's new to Washington. It's okay. <laughs> oh, you should hear me say pull y'all up. Pull oh, y'all. Uh, <laughs> yep. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I am a former Texan. So what is that process for becoming human compost? All three providers, one of them you've heard of, um, Recompose, the next one, Return Home, devised their process off Recompose, and then Herland Forest was already doing it outside in the ground, and they just took it above ground. So the process is um, a bunch of natural organic material like maybe mulch, alfalfa, flower petals. They're put into like a big, giant, we'll say giant casket. Um, It would almost be the size of like a freezer, refrigerator freezer, you know, that lays on its side in like your your garage or whatever. So they fill it about two thirds full with this mixture. Then the body is laid in nude. Um, We can't really use any organic fabrics because it's not going to decompose fast enough. The process at most takes three months. One facility recomposed does it in one month and return home does it in two. So what happens is the body is laid nude or with like a paper gown outfit, which actually looks surprisingly really good. Like if the family wants to see what's going on or they want to lay flowers in or even a ham sandwich because it will break down. (laughs) Um, No plastic wrap on it though. But yeah, they lay the body in and then they put another mixture of the same stuff on top. And then the vessel is set aside and either in one case, There's a little bitty auger inside that kind of mixes everything as it goes. So it'll break down the bones within that month span. The next one, um, a month in, we'll dump everything onto a conveyor belt and put the bones through a grinder and then let it sit again, the mixture for another month. And then uh, out in Herland Forest, he's got the real elements of the outside to deal with. So he may go three months, four months, five months, however long he thinks it needs to be to make sure winter didn't impede on what was happening inside. And what you get back at the end is literally, it looks like mulch. Um, It's really moisture dense kind of really nutrient rich um i sent some samples they had some pig samples from return home uh soil that you could take and i sent some of those to a friend of mine in california that has labs and the it's all great it's there's nothing left that resembles or even biologically is human 
Um, it's literally just amazing topsoil that can be used. Is that different for cremation because then someone just keeps some of that soil and the rest is given somewhere or they take all of that home and use it on their property? So there's two different ways they can do it. Well, one, they can opt not to have any of it. And these facilities like Herland Forest will put it on their own land. Return Home has a deal with Herland Forest to put some out on their land. And then Recompose has a deal with indigenous land to help re-fortify it. So they put it out there. Um, some of the facilities have offered like little hat boxes or, you know, little I mean, they, they look cute. They're not like a cardboard box that your loved ones hurt. But these yield like a whole entire pickup bed full of material. So um, a lot of people in urban settings don't have the space for that. And how are you going to drive that across town respectfully? Yeah. So they give families the option to come pick it up themselves. And a couple have. I've actually heard from from two of the facilities that, that a couple of families have opted to have everything and they come pick it up. And it's just, it's really encouraging to hear that. What are, you know, all of these things are so much better for the environment and for the bodies themselves. I know like with the aqua cremation, you're saying it's like this really fine, lovely powder as opposed to chunky, ashy cremation remains. The pushback that you're experiencing, is that coming from just societal norms and that being uncomfortable for people? Or are there other elements as to why people wouldn't be into that? Um, I found out a lot of it is political. (laughs) So back when I was assisting, trying to help Texas get water cremation legalized, I learned that it's not about pounding the pavement and getting the word out there. It really is about who pays who and who higher up can get things across. So like the Catholics were very involved. The political Catholics were very involved in trying to say water cremation was so disrespectful to the body because you're putting it down the drain do they realize what happens in embalming like they drain the blood mix it with carcinogenic embalming fluid and yeah it is carcinogenic when it's embalming fluid before it's introduced to the body so for the user putting it in the dead body it's not good for them that all goes down the drain too all of the orifices and cavities in your body your lungs your abdomen your stomach fluid your urine, everything in the abdominal cavity is punctured with a big trocar, which is like a giant hollow sword. And all those fluids are sucked out and they go straight down the drain. Well, that's no different than a woman having her period or explosive diarrhea in the bathroom or anything like that. But if they're so concerned about the purity of the body and keeping everything together, that's bad too. And you're mutilating a corpse. You are mutilating a corpse. Let's talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like if you followed that money, it wouldn't be that many steps until you're at the number two casket guy in all of Texas or the number one cremation guy in the Midwest. Speaking of, okay, so in Illinois, there's a water cremation company, the only one that's in the United States. The other one was created overseas. They have been doing water cremation for years and years for like big farm animals and stuff. Well, somebody in the capital there um, is one of the big casket guys. And guess where water cremation is not yet legalized, even though it's in their backyard. It just doesn't make sense, not only environmentally, but for, like you said, the workers. Sounds a lot more dangerous to be dealing with embalming fluid and big hollow swords than (laughs) a, a really big washing machine. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. 
or you know like a hole in the in the wall of a warehouse where you turn into soil you know <laughs> yeah oh I had a comment about the basket that they got for her yes the pine box Yes. How many, how many of those of you that have watched this episode thought, you know what, that looks way better than that other casket. Cause I sure did. <laughs> yeah. All of this can be a scary topic, whether it's for political reasons or personal reasons, it's scary to talk about. What are some things people can do besides having those conversations to, for themselves to kind of approach death and not be so fearful. I know studies have come out that said people that have embraced their own death lead happier lives. What are your suggestions for kind of steps of facing that? Um, you can practice with your pets first. Obviously, we're going to lose a lot more pets in our lifetime than we're going to lose our people companions. So preparing for the death of a pet or a family pet, um, have your crematory your water cremation facility, your cemetery, or your pet composting place. There's one here in Washington called Rooted. Have that picked out ahead of time because what you don't realize is when you're dealing with a vet and they euthanize, they have a lot of agreements with corporate crematories and they're going to refer you to the place that's going to give them a kickback because it's just easier for them. They're there to deal with life, not death. So have your plan ahead of time for your pet. Do you want to bring your pet back home to see the other pets or not see them, but let the other pets see the deceased pet? You can look up home vigil pet hashtags or different things like that on Instagram to kind of get an idea of what other people have done. Like I've had people share with me what they've done for their pets. Some of those are on my Instagram, but it exists. You can take your pet back home and give your other pets closure or your friends and family closure in the comfort of your own home and then have the disposition go any of the four ways that are, that are available. Earlier this year, you had hosted some classes around everything that you are an expert in. Can you talk a little bit about those? And if you have any more coming up? Yeah, so one of them was eco-death. Um, we covered the three eco-forms of disposition, which is the water cremation, the natural organic reduction, and the natural burial, and how to get them. And then another Zoom session I did was how to get a therapy dog in your funeral home or the benefits of having that, which is kind of more career-focused if you're interested in death care and dogs. <laughs> Um, the other one was social media and death care, you know, how to take a taboo topic and, and talk about it in an entertaining and educational way without being disrespectful. But those can be found on my Instagram. I'll pop them up when they're available. But if there's a particular topic I don't have something scheduled for, people can always just get the recording from Zoom. And I send it out to them via DM. Um, let's hop back on the episode and how aghast I was when he released a baby urn to them and said it was that lady and had no paperwork for the release, no next of kin to sign. You have to have a legal next of kin to sign to cremate somebody. Yeah. And who was in the wooden casket? Who got kicked? That's a great question. Who was in the pine box? I didn't yeah. even think about that. And yeah. she got kicked. Poor gal. Does that mean the other funeral that's happening is mixed up too? Did Rubenstein go home in the urn? Ooh. So many questions. Too many questions. <laughs> yeah, the guy walked down to Goodwill and go, oh, this will work for her ashes. It's not even an urn. It's like a trophy. <laughs> <laughs> May I ask a personal question? Have you decided how you would like your remains to be processed when you die? 
Well, growing up, I always wanted somebody to drag me to a cave, like kind of put me in somewhere where kids would run into my dead corpse someday, but we all know that's impossible. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's the best answer possible for that question. That was even before I wanted to be a mortician, but now I realize that there are rules and I think I just want to be like wrapped in a cotton blanket and put in a natural burial hole that has a lot of trees around it. I don't want a natural burial park like from Texas where everything's flat. I want mountainsides, trees, uh, conservation, natural burial park. What about you though? Oh, I haven't decided because they're all, all these new ones keep coming out and they're so fascinating and uh, they seem fulfilling, which it's also like, why should I care? Because I'm going to be gone. Um, but definitely something natural. I, I Natural burial or aqua cremation, either one I'm I'm okay with. So yeah. especially being lucky being here where it's like, yes, it's Oregon. Mm-hmm. It's the Northwest. Of course, we can find these weird burial things very conveniently. So uh, yeah, you know, and my partner knows and my family knows. So I'm pretty open about like, don't put me in an expensive box. None of that. Just yeah. uh, have, a, have a good party. <laughs> Yay! Thank you so much for joining us, Melissa. You can find her on Instagram and TikTok at mod underscore mortician. Unfortunately, the ladies are still getting scammed, but let's take a second to acknowledge Bee's acting here. When she shouts about being bereaved on a budget, she didn't expect for the alliteration to get the laugh that it did. So as she continues talking, but the laughs linger, she starts the line over, but in a very natural way. Not wanting to miss out on a sale, Pfeiffer tries to sell them on his $3,000 model. Taking a peek at his book, something catches Blanche's eye. Like a choreographed chorus, the girls each take a turn with a line. Blanche, what do you call this? Him, a pine box. Rose, how much? Him, 200 bucks. Sophia, sold. When they move forward with planning the actual service, Pfeiffer starts with an offer of a Thursday night. The girls all nearly the girls are all nearly disgusted at the idea. Who on earth would want to miss the Cosby show for a funeral? Oh boy. We've talked before about how wildly successful The Cosby Show was, and that's all that needs to be said about it. Also, I don't know what's up with the evening services. I've been to many a funeral, never one at night. Not being concerned with what might be on TV Friday night, they go ahead with that. Still desperate to sell more than a pine casket, Pfeiffer asks Blanche if she's given any thoughts to her funeral. Not really, except like my grandmother, Charlie Nyland, and our Coco, she hopes to go out with a bang. Literally, another very spicy joke. It's Friday night and the funeral is right. Now. As Rose with a hint of red on her sweater's middle seam, Blanche with a hint of white from her long pearls, and Dorothy with a hint of purple peeking out of the top of her shirt inspired by the apron you wear when getting a haircut, all sit in black in the second row. A widow, but make it elegant, Sophia is in the front row, nearly touching the pine box. Shaking her head in despair, she can't help but to mutter to herself, What a horrible tragedy. How awful. No, those aren't her feelings about Frida. She's being my actual grandmare and listening to the Dodgers game on the radio. You know it's the Dodgers because she references their manager, Tommy Lasorda, famous for winning championships and his volatile personality. You're good, Tommy. I don't give a if you feel good. There's four motherfucking hits up there. I don't give a f- You got a left hand here, I can strike this mother f- out. I don't give a f- Dougie. 
Well, I may be wrong, but that's my job. I'll make the I'll make the decisions here. I'll make the decisions here, okay? A horrified Dorothy rips the headphone from her mother in disgust. Fed up, the girls start heading out, but Rose isn't ready. She thinks friends of Frida's will show up, which will make her feel less sad. Hmm, interesting. Weird that she's making this all about her, but okay. Like a prayer being answered, a little old lady comes in the door, dressed with gray gloves, a navy coat, and black hat. Playing the guest who's worried she's arrived too late is Omsi Strickland. In her career, which spanned from 1937 to 2001, she had over 269 credits. Nice. They include so much more, but here are some of the more notable projects. ER, Seventh Heaven, Ellen, Krippendorf's Tribe, Dr. Quinn, Wings, Roseanne, Mad About You, Sister, Sister, Full House, The Golden Palace, Empty Nest, Pretty Woman, Elf, Murphy Brown, St. Elsewhere, Twilight Zone, Facts of Life, Flow, The Waltons, Barnaby Jones, Mission Impossible, Happy Days, That Girl, Gunsmoke, Dragnet, multiple appearances on Andy Griffith, Ozzy and Harriet, Bonanza, Leave It to Beaver, I Love Lucy, A Favorite of Mine, Sorry, Wrong Number, and multiple spots on The Danny Thomas Show. You know, that one hosted by the lesbian. That's for next week's episode. (laughs) The doubtful girls feel they've been proven wrong, that Frida was loved, and here was her best friend of over 60 years to prove it. Rose asks her to say a few words about her friend. So the woman walks to the front of the room and begins to paint a picture of Frida that the girls just can't comprehend. They start to look at one another, feeling terrible for all the horrible things they said about this person who did have kindness and love in her heart. A woman with friends. A woman who donated to important causes, who spent time working on colonies with those that suffered from the bacterial infection called Hansen's disease, or leprosy, which causes skin lesions, but it is curable. A woman by the name of Celia Rubenstein. Once the girls hear the name of the woman that did all of those kind things, they realize this woman is in the wrong room speaking at the wrong funeral. So Dorothy screeches out a who before a sassy Blanche says, almost out of annoyance, this funeral's for Frida Claxton. Right then, Pfeiffer pops his head into the room to point the woman in the right direction. Embarrassed, she apologizes before clarifying that Frida Claxton was who they said the service was for. With a devilish smile, she approaches the box and gives it a swift kick. All of this is too much for Rose to bear. It's destroying her that a person could not only be universally hated, but seem to have not mattered in the first place. Sophia lets Rose run away to have her emotional moment while Dorothy and Blanche process all of it. Dorothy summing it up. She's in someone else's hands. Yep, she literally is. Pfeiffer has mixed up the orders and he has cremated Miss Claxton. That's why you hire adults to run the crematorium. The monkey they thought was no longer in their circus has come screeching back as they are now responsible for Frida's ashes. The next morning, we find Dorothy on the couch in her same sad brown pants and a cute carpet scrap sweater with an undershirt the cover of the couch cushions, when Blanche comes out of the hallway in her teal pantsuit with pink undershirt. Nearly out of breath, she asks if at 2 a.m. Dorothy heard screams and moans. No, when your door's closed, I usually don't hear anything. No, Blanche clarifies, I'm not talking about sex noises, ghost noises, cremated noises, haunted ashes noises. 
Coming out of the hall is Sophia in a dress that, I am not even kidding, is exactly the same pattern of black background and pastel pink flowers as the wallpaper in my childhood living room. I will find a picture and post it at Always Be My Sister's Pod. Blanche needs someone to confirm the spooky sounds, so she asks Sophia if she heard anything ghastly last night. Yeah, I heard them. I was making them after eating expired cottage cheese. So Blanche maybe should have clarified, not gassy noises, just ghastly. Sophia then says, My kingdom for an Alka-Seltzer, which is a play on a quote from Shakespeare's Richard III. As he lay dying on a battlefield, King Richard says, My kingdom for a horse. According to NoSweatShakespeare.com, this phrase became a popular term for saying, I need something small but vital right now, of which I'll give up everything. In this case, it's Sophia, saying she'd give anything for the heartburn and tummy ache relieving medicine, Alka-Seltzer. Ellen, I mean Rose, comes bursting in the front door. Hi! I'm Ellen Burstyn. Rocking some white pants and a light blue sweatshirt. And she has some great news. She has taken care of Frida Claxton's ashes, killing three birds with one stone. Rose spread her ashes around the oak tree on her property, thus getting the haunted ashes away from Blanche, saving the tree because you can't disturb a resting place, and to prove that Frida's angry little life had meaning, because now she's able to protect the tree. Dorothy and Blanche are moved. As weird as all of that might be, it's actually pretty sweet. Excited to have the tree safe, the ladies all go out to the front porch to have a look. Before moving on, I'm pretty sure this is the first time, and I might be wrong, that the bench is outside the front door. My Grammy actually had the exact same one, which I didn't realize until I was older. And now I have it in my backyard, and I actually used it for the artwork of the show. Happy to know the tree will be saved, the ladies look at it in awe. For Blanche, the tree will always be a reminder to do something nice for other people, to give her life purpose while she's alive. When Sophia joins, they tell her the good news, to which she points out that a Great Dane is taking a leak on her ashes. Ah, the circle of life. (gasps) So many lessons to be learned in this episode. Number one, be nice. It's not fun to go through life with people wishing you would drop dead. You don't have to like them, just maybe let them have their tree. Number two, just because someone isn't warm or kind doesn't mean it's your job to help or fix them. Make it known you're there for them via a phone call or a Danish, but don't force your lifestyle on a hermit. And number three, don't let your family get cheated because they're mourning you. Tell your family what you want for the end of your life. Post it online. Have those conversations with friends. And hopefully you'll choose a green method that allows your body to, just like Frida's, continue to serve a purpose even in death. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week for what might be my very favorite episode, Isn't It Romantic? While Melissa the Mod Mortician doesn't have Golden Girls themed items, she does have a shop with Society6, which you can find by following her on Instagram and TikTok at mod underscore mortician. That's where you can learn all about body processing, the options available for your body, and of course, find out about her awesome dog, Kermit. Come for the death, stay for the dog. And while you're there, get yourself a Cremate the Patriarchy shirt. That's at mod underscore mortician on Instagram and TikTok. Once again, rocking her yellow sweatshirt with light plant, light plant. 
You can't be half nice. Yeah, maybe Hitler was like, I've adopted 50 dogs from shelters. That was going like, to be my example, but I, I try not to jump straight to Hitler. I know, but it's a it's an easy coverall. <laughs> Hitler, the Hitler. It'll be this. <laughs> or in the term Rose uses, Indian corn. Okay. Indian corn. <laughs> Indian Hello, are you a shaky, shaky voiced old lady? I'm a shaky voiced old man. What word were you trying to say? I was trying to say corn. Corn. But it scared oh, me. I love corn. <laughs> you make friends with it twice. <laughs> you said corn so many times. I know. You said corn. It's a lot of corn. So many corns. You weren't like a gum chewer or anything? Oh, I was a gum chewer, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I always had gum. Oh, yeah, I guess but I had But the corn like... was the only... That was the only like weird... Decoration. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't like eating Christmas ornaments or chewing on welcome mats. It was, hey, that's a food. Why is there corn sitting here? I can chomp on that. Sucking on a curtain. Because <laughs> even when I was little, still today, I'm a fan of kernels at the bottom of a popcorn. Me too, but they need to be partially popped. Oh, be, yeah. A little bit of an a opening. A little swollen, yeah. Swollen. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I like my snacks swollen. Why don't you go sit on a fridge? Why don't you go sit on that volcano and have it burn your buns? <laughs> Why don't you go sit on that 200-year-old oak? Why don't you get DNA out of a mosquito and recreate dinosaurs and have one eat you? Did you want to say anything about that moment, just that it was a joke that didn't land, or do you not care? It might have been racist, but it wasn't racist enough <laughs> to, to land. <laughs> I, I didn't have acne. I've oh, been, that's good. Yeah, you do have really nice skin. I've been, I am so thankful, and I have been blessed with nice skin. Yeah, you do have nice skin. But, you know, that's about the only thing that... <laughs> actually, And actually, you know what? My skin is attacking me, so <laughs> thanks, psoriasis. She lost Butter Queen, and she lost her mind. The story of Rose Nyland. Every rose has a thorn. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.